Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Barry Lotzer. He's a professor emeritus at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Uh, Barry is also the author, most recently, of The Roots of Violent Crime in America, From the Gilded Age to the Great Depression, which is published by LSU Press, University Press. Um, Barry, thanks very much for joining us and for continuing to write for City Journal. We, we always uh, welcome you um, and glad to have you on the show. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. It's great to be with you. Now, this new book is a kind of sequel to your previous uh, volume, which was called The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America, which was published by Encounter a few years ago, which covered the crime wave of the mid to late 20th century. And that was a very comprehensive book uh, where you looked at a number of possible drivers of crime, uh, the economy, the state of the criminal justice system, and culture. Your cultural argument in the book was, was sophisticated and nuanced, but in essence, you were arguing that the great migration was behind much of the crime wave as an emphasis on conflict from Southern culture set the stage for the the gang violence that was occurring in cities in the 70s and 80s. This new book goes back a bit further to the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. If we could focus a bit on this cultural question, what are some of the lessons you gleaned while writing this new volume? How did the cultural legacy of the 80s uh, right up to the 30s from the waves of migration and prohibition to the Great Depression, World War I, how did these things affect crime rates? And how does what happened then uh, have implications for today's crime? I think it drew the uh, cultural explanation into even sharper focus, Brian, because what I found was when we looked at the homicide rates primarily and other violent crime rates of different groups who had either migrated or immigrated to the United States, we found sharply uh, different rates of crime. And yet they were all in the same terrible circumstances, discriminated against, impoverished, living in slum uh, locations, uh, having a very rough time of it in, in the United States. Uh, or in the North, in the case of African-Americans who had migrated. So this, how, how do we explain the differences in violent crime rates from groups that are so similar in their circumstances? To me, this reinforces the uh, cultural argument. There must be some explanation uh, uh, based on the characteristics, if you will, of the, of the group. None of this is inherent or biological. It isn't even racial, really. It, uh, it's just happenstance that race and culture are fused in the United States because of our history of enslaving blacks. But it's really a cultural argument that I'm making. And culture just refers here to the beliefs uh, and behaviors uh, that are distinctive to a group. So when Blacks uh, undertook the Great Migration, as it's called, and especially right after World War I, when lots of jobs opened up in the North, uh, we find this, uh, what, we, what the historians call a culture of honor uh, in the South, we find this prevalent among African Americans 
And so when Blacks migrated north, they took this honor culture with them. And we see very high rates of Black-on-Black -black violent crime uh, in the North among African-Americans. And this really sets the pattern for the United States for the entire 20th century and even into the 21st century. I'm not arguing that all crime among African-Americans is attributable uh, to the honor culture, but certainly when we see disputes between African-Americans over petty issues, over small and inconsequential matters, and when we see those disputes turn violent, to me, this is the quintessential uh, illustration of these kinds of uh, cultural explanations, this kind of honor culture uh, behavior. So you're rejecting the idea that crime is largely driven by economic conditions, which has been a, a prevalent view in criminology and really in the broader social debate about uh, crime. You, you don't believe um, that, that material deprivation is, is behind, you know, people acting badly. Well, <laughs> I, I would say this, I'm qualifying the explanation, uh, I recognize, as I think everybody does, that the vast majority of violent crimes are committed by low-income people. Uh, what I think is not understood is the differences among different low-income groups. Uh, here's an illustration. I, I, I uh, devoted a whole chapter of the Roots book, chapter eight of the book, comparing the crime of Italians and Jews who arrived in New York City at roughly the same time between 1900 and World War I. So here we have two immigrant groups, both obviously in, uh, you know, culturally distinctive from one another, culturally distinctive from, from most Americans, landing in the same place at the same time in miserable circumstances, living in slums, discriminated against, and yet when I look at the data, I find that the Italian immigrants had very high violent crime rates and the Jewish immigrants did not. And we're not talking about, you know, wealthy Jews. We're talking about impoverished Jews. So how do we explain this? Same location, same time span, same miserable conditions, and yet one group has much higher violent crime rates than the other. To me, this is a perfect illustration of the, of the cultural argument. And when I tracked back into Europe to see what the crime rate rates were of these groups in Europe, I found that the Southern Italians had some of the highest violent crime rates in Europe, and the Jews had relatively low violent crime rates in Europe. So in other words, the, this, this reinforced the cultural argument because the culture developed in Europe and then was carried over to the United States. So I recognize that poor people do the vast bulk of violent crime. And I view it this way. The more affluent people have a inocul an inoculation, a vaccine, if you will, against doing violence because they stand to lose a great deal by engaging in violent behavior. They could lose their jobs, they could lose their families, 
They lose their reputation in the community. They have everything to lose. But young, low-income males don't worry about these losses. They don't uh, really risk very much by engaging in violent behavior. So I think the explanation then for violence is partly cultural, partly uh, class or economic, however one wants to, to term it. But the economic explanation alone is not sufficient. And we know this because of the different behaviors of different impoverished groups. The cultural explanation, what are the implications it, it might have for um, how to tackle crime? You know, the, the prevalent argument for a long time in the United States was that uh, uh, crime could really, since it was econ economically rooted, it could only be fought by attacking the root causes of crime. So in effect, you had to transform society, get rid of inequality and poverty uh, for, for crime to, um, you know, be, be brought under control. Now, I think we, we proved that that wasn't the case through policies in the 90s and 2000s. But I, I wonder what your view is about the, the implications of the cultural argument for policymakers. In the short run and in the medium run, we need to use criminal justice policies to control crime. That is arresting uh, people who do uh, uh, bad crimes and imprisoning them. And that's, you know, there are, there are smarter ways and, and less smart ways to do that, but that's a whole other debate. If we're talking about reducing, let's say, violent crime among African-Americans or among uh, low-income uh, Hispanic groups, to me, the big uh, the answer is that people are just going to have to be patient. Like the Irish and Italian immigrants before them, after several generations of better education, of the development of, of, uh, of good skills to enable the group to advance, they're going to move up to the middle class, and when they do, their violent crime rates are going to diminish. So in a sense, Brian, I, you know, I don't disagree with the leftist implication that moving to the middle class reduces crime. I just disagree on the, the means and methods uh, that, that need to be used. I think that this involves a multi-generational education and skills acquisition uh, a process. That's the way it was for the Irish who immigrated in the 19th century. That's the way it was for the Italians who immigrated in the early 20th century. And nowadays, we don't even think about the Irish and Italians in terms of crime, except, I guess, the Italians because of those mafia movies. But we don't even think about ordinary Italians and violent crime anymore, to say nothing of the Irish. So I think this is our future. I'm very optimistic, unlike many people. I'm very optimistic about the reduction of crime among African Americans. But this is not an instant thing. This is not going to happen because of some forcible redistribution of wealth. This is going to happen over generations through education and skills acquisition. I'd like to ask a question about the methodology um, that you employed in writing this book. You know, we take for granted today the ability to look up data on, on crime across the United States, but the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program 
really didn't get underway until the late 20s, 1929, and the Bureau of Justice Statistics wasn't founded until 1979. So I wonder if you could explain how you compiled the statistics in this book, which has quite a few of them, and um, had some sense of their accuracy. Prior to the 20th century, Brian, you really have uh, no national data. Uh, there's some uh, prison data, but prison data can't be used to measure crime trends because imprisonments are more a, a function of what the police do and what the courts do. And what they do really doesn't necessarily depend on the amount of crime. It might depend on the number of police, for instance, or on whether or not courts are, are acquitting or convicting people. So the imprisonment data are really not that reliable for, for determining crime trends. So the only thing to rely upon and crime historians use this for the 19th century, is uh, homicide mortality data, where you have uh, coroners, they're now called medical examiners, uh, uh, really uh, calculating the number of people who died at the hands of another human being. That's a homicide. Whether that results in a criminal prosecution and conviction or not is another question. But usually homicides are a good indicator of violent crime. So that's what we have for the 19th century, and that's and that's all we have. And, and those are not even national. No one ever tried to gather up all, all the data from local counties throughout the uh, United States. Moving to the 20th century, we can do better because the uh, uh, mortality data was collected by the Census Bureau. And so from the 1920s on, we have national homicide mortality figures. And those data are pretty good. They're pretty reliable. The big flaw in this is obvious. That tells you about murder, but it doesn't tell you about robbery or assault or rape or any other uh, crime of violence. So we just have to uh, really use newspaper reports, local arrest data, and draw inferences from the uh, homicide mortality uh, data uh, about uh, violent crime generally. But as you say, starting in the 30s, especially in the uh, late 30s, the uh, FBI started gathering police data and that really improved things uh, greatly. And then by the 1970s, we started using uh, criminal victimization interview data. And, and that was the final big improvement in uh, the analysis of crime. Recently, uh, what is, in my view, a kind of strange argument has emerged on the left um, that policing in the United States is is basically something that has grown out of slave patrols. Um, I wonder what your take is on that, uh, that new argument. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is almost totally false. Uh, uh, the modern police department developed because the uh, law enforcement systems in the big cities of the North uh, were really inadequate prior to the, the creation of police departments. 
So this is an urban northern phenomenon. By this, I mean the creation of police departments. Uh, slave patrols were essentially uh, state-sanctioned uh, groups of uh, white men who uh, hunted down and apprehended runaway slaves. This was uh, done in the rural South uh, uh, prior, of course, to emancipation, whereas police departments uh, were response to the increase in urban crime and that was, by the way, due mainly to the Irish immigration in, in, the, in the 19th century. So the, the first real urban police department is uh, developed in New York, actually, in, in 1845. London was first, and New York copied London, but New York was the first in, in the United States. And then in the 1850s, the other big cities followed uh, suit, uh, New Orleans, Cincinnati, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Baltimore all developed police departments in the 1850s, usually along the lines of the, of the New York model. New York became the model for uh, policing. This had nothing to do with slavery or slave patrols. This was all about... Uh, urban crime and the inability of the older system uh, to, to deal with uh, urban crime, whereas the slave patrols were really uh, rural and dealt with the situation uh, in the South uh, prior to emancipation. So it's, it's really apples and oranges, Brian. I mean, uh, as far as I could see, the, they have nothing to do with one another. You've got another book coming out soon, a more popular uh, a book called The Myth of Overpunishment, a defense of the American justice system and a proposal to reduce incarceration while protecting the public. Uh, I wonder if you could just give us an anticipation of what the argument of that book is. Uh, yeah, I, I think this one will be of more general uh, interest uh, you know, not that the crime histories are not interesting, <laughs> but I think this one is going to be so timely because it's addressing the whole question of uh, what has come to be known as mass incarceration. This book uh, will be in three parts, Brian. The first part is going to be a history, but a brief history, of uh, punishment in the United States uh, from the uh, colonial period. When, when punishments were, uh, by and large, bodily punishments, uh, whipping, for instance, using pillory and stocks, uh, using the death penalty. Uh, and so you have corporal punishment. And this gave way, once we had the, uh, the American Revolution, this, this gave way to uh, imprisonment and the development uh, of the prison. But prisons back then were quite different than prisons uh, now. And one of the big points of the book is that we see the evolution of the system from a rather harsh and definitely racist uh, system into a rather lenient and uh, system that, that repudiates racism. Uh, so this is the point of part one of the, of the book. The second part of the book is, is really a critique of the mass incarceration arguments, which are essentially calling for deprisonization, the removal of, 
what I consider very dangerous people from uh, prison. And in fact, some have even argued for eliminating prisons altogether, even though, Brian, they have no real replacement for the, the prison. The third part of the book, I argue, we should undertake an expansion, a radical expansion, really, of the use of electronic monitoring, especially for people who are released from prison on parole. These are dangerous people with very high recidivism rates. A a recent study by the uh, Bureau of Just Statistics found uh, 83% were arrested again for another crime after being released. Uh, 83%, that is, of of all of the prisoners who were released were tracked and and they were rearrested within nine years of their release. Most were rearrested within a year. So, So these are repeaters. These are dangerous people. And I argue It's time to use technology, which we use for so many different things and very effectively. It's time to use technology to restrain these people who commit multiple crimes on multiple times. We can use the technology to monitor them and thus create real disincentives to crime. I'd also like to see it done more with people put on probation. And I'd like to see electronic monitoring even used for people who were arrested and, and not yet convicted of a crime to, uh, as, as a way, really, of, of reducing the jail population. Uh, just releasing people, which seems to be the current trend, and not monitoring them adequately because the probation officers and parole officers are overwhelmed with their caseloads, doesn't seem to me to be a sensible solution especially when you have people who recidivate all the time. But electronic monitoring would really discourage these people from committing a different, uh, additional crimes. That would protect the public. And ultimately, it will actually reduce incarceration. So I think this is one of those win-win-win arguments. And, and that's the argument I make in the third part of the book. It sounds very interesting. What when is the uh, when is the release date exactly? Well, I know Amazon says I just checked this morning. Actually, Amazon says September, but that's uh, I don't know where they got that from. But when I checked with the publisher, they said probably not till January of uh, of twenty twenty two. I hope it'll be a little earlier than that, but let's figure sometime in the winter uh, this coming winter. Well, it sounds sounds very very interesting and important. Uh, the two books, his new book is "The Roots of Violent Crime in America: From the Gilded Age Through the Great Depression," and the forthcoming book is called "The Myth of Overpunishment." Uh, Barry Lotzer, very very glad to have you on the show. Um, don't forget to check out Barry's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. And keep an eye out for a forthcoming feature by Barry in the fall issue of our quarterly magazine. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, uh, please give us a five-star ratings on iTunes.
Barry, thanks very much. Great, great to hear you, uh, hear from you, and uh, look forward to the new book as well. Thank you, Brian. This is a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.